Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Mark chapter 5. The title of the message, A Man Who Was Radically Changed by the Power of God. This account of the maniac of Gadara is found in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew chapter 8, here in Mark chapter 5, and also in Luke chapter 8. We're going to follow Mark's account because it gives us more detail than the others. Peter was most likely the one who had been there and repeated everything of what happened to John Mark. And Mark is writing that as Peter has given him that firsthand account. There's so much detail. It's a fascinating, a fascinating story. Let me start with some answers to common questions uh, when we think of the, the story of this uh, man who was changed by God's power. Uh, first of all, was it one person or was it two maniacs of Gadara? Matthew says that there are two. Mark and Luke only record one. And so you know how people do that don't believe the Bible. They say, ah, an apparent discrepancy here. And we say, yes, apparent, but it's not a discrepancy. There are no mistakes in the Bible. And so there is an answer. The answer is probably that there were two men who were demon-possessed. But this one was the leader of the two, or the one who was in worse condition. A.T. Robertson says he was probably more violent than the other. Another question that comes up uh, by critics as to where this took place. Mark and Luke say it was in the country of the Gadarenes. Matthew says in the country of the Gergesenes. So is it Gadara or Gersa? And the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, Matthew 5, or Mark 5, verse 1, says that they went to the other side. That was on the opposite side of the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. The disciples of Christ were coming out of the ship there, coming to the shore. The terrain was mountainous. There were graves that were cut into the hillside. Well, 37 miles southeast of the Sea of Galilee is the town called Gadara. The present town is about 30 miles from the shore. And so you can see it couldn't have been there. But the entire region was referred to as the area of Gadara. The event probably took place in Kursa or Gursa. The modern town now is named Kursi. That's located on the northeast portion of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum. There are also caves in that area. And the cliffs fit the description of what happened there. And so... The area of Gadara, specifically the town of Cursa. The third question comes, was it really ethical of Jesus to destroy all those, uh, the livelihood of these farmers, these pig farmers? Um, 2,000 pigs, worth a lot of money. Well, if you look at the area, it is controlled by the half-tribe of Manasseh, or inherited, and so it was a part of Israel but it was mostly inhabited by Gentiles, also some Hellenistic Jews. Those were Jews who were uh, not as orthodox as others. Uh, the law said that the Jews were not to eat pork. In fact, they weren't even to touch a, a pig. Uh, this would have been a stern rebuke then for those who had no concern for the law of God. So yes, the destruction of these animals was the right thing to do. God's dietary laws were still in effect for Israel. You say, when did those end? Probably Mark 7:19, where Jesus was with the Pharisees and the 
The Pharisees were accusing his disciples of eating with unwashed hands. That's a good place to start the dietary laws or ceremonial laws, dietary laws, civil and moral laws for Israel. And uh, so the, the dietary and the, the uh, ceremonial laws were for them and not for the church. So Mark 7:19, another Acts 10:15, when uh, uh, Peter was uh, with Simon the Tanner in Joppa. Uh, so those laws were still in effect at this point in, in chapter 5 for the children of Israel. Um, the other lesson here in destruction of these uh, animals was that people are more important than animals. A man has an eternal soul, and so these 2,000 uh, pigs are no match for the worth of a man's rescued soul. And then the, the strongest argument, of course, that we always come back to is that Jesus was the one who did this, and he always does what is right, what is ethical. Uh, so this is exactly what needed to be done. This miracle took place right after the calming at the of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. In that miracle, and Jesus uh, spoke the word and the seas were calm. The disciples were amazed. They even feared the Lord. He, he demonstrated his power over the elements, over weather and the sea. And here he proves that he also has power over the demonic world, over the spirit world, demons and angels. In those two lessons to the disciples, uh, we can find great comfort the storms that you face in life, those physical things that just come up at a, at a moment's notice where you don't even know that they're there coming, God can uh, calm those storms. And those battles that you face, those spiritual battles against Satan and against his demons, he's in charge of that too. So let's look at some of the, uh, the, the, the verses here that describe this miraculous rescue of a man who is possessed by demons and see how he was radically changed by the power of God. In verses 1 to 5, we see uh, the man was in great need of being changed. And they came over unto the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him a man of the tombs, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains. Because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. We had an unclean spirit. Satan's demonic forces are unclean, they're impure, they have a corrupting influence. There is a, a chemical that's added to uh, LPG, liquid petroleum gas, that gives it that rotten egg smell because it's an odorless gas and it can be very dangerous. We need that kind of a chemical added to some things that Satan has on his shelf to tempt us. Uh, Satan's demonic forces are unclean. We need to we need to smell that. We need to know that. We need to be aware of that. Mark uses a word here for spirit in the singular, but Matthew tells us that they were possessed with devils. It's in the plural. Later, we'll discover by their own admission that they are legion, 6,000, or many demons controlling this man. Demons are fallen angels. They don't take up 
space. The question is always asked, tongue-in-cheek, how many angels can sit on the head of a pin? Angels don't have bodies. They don't take up physical space. They're spirits. And here, there are many that are residing in this man. They come into a body and live there. Luke said that he has had this, uh, the, these devils a long time. And you think about it, the longer a person rejects the grace of God and rejects Christ as Savior, the more Satan seems to have control over them. It's as though they build up these walls that keep them from responding to the invitation that God has for them. Demons are active today. They follow Satan, whose goal is to destroy people's lives. He does that by blinding them. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In whom the God of this world, speaking of Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. They're refusing to believe, and Satan blinds their minds. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And so they're active. John MacArthur says what uh, they're doing today. He said, though demons generally work in society through the promotion of error, lies, false religion, and apostasy, demon possession is an extreme form of individualized subjugation, wherein one or more evil spirits control a person's mind, body, and sometimes voice. While demon possession can cause physical symptoms, it is a supernatural phenomenon that goes beyond scientific, psychological, or medical explanation. Warren Wearsby talks about these men that came uh, to Jesus that day, controlled by demons. He says, we're not told how the demons entered these men and took control, but possibly it was the result of their yielding to sin. Demons are unclean spirits and can easily get a foothold in the lives of people who cultivate sinful practices. These two men in the graveyard were no doubt extreme examples of what Satan can do to people. But what they reveal is enough to make us want to resist Satan and have nothing to do with him. The question is often asked, can a Christian, can a believer be possessed by demons? The answer that I give is there's no indication in the Bible that that ever happened. In fact, Colossians 1.13 tells us that God has delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. As a believer, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. So demons and Satan can't take up that residence. Notice also that this man lived among the tombs. The ground around Israel is very rocky. There are a lot of natural caves that are often used for burials. This man was dwelling in these caves where people had been buried. It says he came out of the tombs. Tombs there, you notice, is plural. So he would go into one for shelter and then into another and into another. This was his home. Several authors suggest that the demons led these men to believe are to live among the tombs to, to scare people, to think that these were the spirits of those people who had been buried there. Notice it says, he was exceeding fierce. Matthew 8, 28. We read that when he, uh, Jesus, was come to the other side of the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by. Mark tells us how people had tried to subdue these demon-possessed men. 
No man could bind them, verse 3, not with chains. Verse 4, they'd been often bound with fetters and chains. And the chains were plucked asunder. The fetters broken in pieces. No one could tame him. He caused great fear. Can you imagine what the disciples thought as they had been in the storm, they came to see, finally on ground, dry ground where things are safe, and all of a sudden here comes this man crying out, yelling at them, cutting himself. He couldn't be bound. In addition to um, the, the, what's going on here, it's interesting to see in the Greek language they have negatives that are piled on top of each other. In English, a double negative is incorrect. Uh, you'll be corrected by English teachers for using a double negative. But in the Greek, the more negatives you use, the more powerful the statement is of, of that negative. And literally, it says here, not even with a chain, no longer could no one bind him. Again, it's not a good English, but it gives you the idea these guys were, were not controllable. It says they couldn't be tamed. He plucked the fetters that bound the feet. He broke the chains asunder into pieces. Um, the, the word tame there is a word that's used to control animals. Kurt Koch is a German author, and he's written several books on the occult. One titled Demonology Past and Present gives case studies of, of people who were possessed with demons and had supernatural strength. Satan is powerful. He had control. Of this man. It says that he wore no clothes in Luke 8:27. Those who are influenced or possessed by demons lose those God-given inhibitions. One of the dramatic changes of the man that took place after he was rescued by Jesus is that when the demons were gone, he's described as one who was clothed and in his right mind. He was in continual torment, verse 5, always night and day, always, refers to how, how often he would be crying and cutting himself. Night and day is this never-ending cycle of the trap that he was in. And unsafe people are like that, whether they know it or not, they continue in these cycles of, of cutting themselves, of doing damage, of not doing anything to get themselves out of that rut, and they can't by themselves. None of us can save ourselves. It takes the intervention of Christ. The, the crying out, Hebert says that this is an unearthly yell or scream. The cutting with stones is a self-inflicted, self-destructive behavior. The, the verbs are imperfect, implying that this was, he was constantly crying and he was constantly cutting himself. Mayo Clinic identifies the practice of cutting, carving, piercing, and burning oneself as non-suicidal self-injury. They write, while self-injury may bring a momentary sense of calm and a release of tension, it's usually followed by guilt and shame and the return of painful emotions. Although life-threatening injuries are usually not intended, with self-injury comes the possibility of more serious and even fatal self-aggression actions. I believe we saw a lot of demon activity when Jesus came in the first advent, and we will see more as his second advent approaches. You may not think that you were as lost as this man was, but he's a mirror image of each of us before Christ changed us. 
We were all lost. We were sinners. Continually living in this cycle of sin, a depraved condition, we were as lost as a sinner could be. And then Jesus came. Evangelist Harry Rimmer in 1939 preached a message. He was talking about uh, the death of Lazarus and how Mary and Martha were weeping. And then he paused and he said in a clarion voice, Then Jesus came and that changed everything. (laughs) Homer Roadhaver was at that service. And he asked Oswald Smith to write a song on that theme, Then Jesus Came. Nancy Shelton played it for the offertory. The second verse is about this very event. From home and friends, the evil spirits drove him. Among the tombs, he dwelt in misery. He cut himself as demon powers possessed him. Then Jesus came and set the captive free. So our second point found in verses 6 through 13. He met the only one who could change him. His initial response is found in verse 6. When he saw Jesus far off, he ran and worshipped him. He saw, he ran, he worshipped. This was more a submissive act on the part of the demons than a voluntary act of worship on the part of the man. But here is what took place, his initial response. And then there's a confrontation in verses 7 through 9. He cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, that is, Jesus said to the man, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. The statements of the demons here, they asked, What have I to do with thee? They recognized that Jesus was the divine Son of God. James writes in James 2.19, Thou believest that that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Demons know that Jesus is who he is. He's the Son of God. And so they're asking, What have I to do with thee, thou Jesus, Son of the Most High? They pleaded, Do not torment me. Matthew 8.29 They cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? And then they asked this question that's not recorded here in Mark. Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? The time they're referring to is the time when Satan and his demons will be punished for eternity. Jesus spoke often about that time. One incident in Matthew 25, 41, he refers to the everlasting fire prepared for the devil. And his angels wasn't prepared for us. It was prepared for him. They know that they're they're headed there. So that before the time, is this the time now? Is this when we're going to be punished for eternity? Notice the authority of Christ. Jesus commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man, verse 8. He asked the spirit to identify himself in verse 9. And he says, my my name is Legion, for we are many. Again, a Roman legion was made up of 6,000 infantrymen. Edmund Hebert, 
explains the use of the term here, what might have been going on as people heard that word. As the representative of the foreign power that dominated them, the term had impressed itself upon the Jewish mind as signifying vast numbers, complex organization, invincible strength, and relentless oppression. Notice the request by the demons, verses 10 through 12. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a, herd, a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter them. The request was intense. He besought him much. Then in verse 12, all the devils besought him. The request was fearful. In Luke 8, verse 31, it says, And they besought him that he would not command them to go into the deep. And the word deep there is a word that we would think of as an abyss. It's used nine times in the New Testament. It's also translated as the bottomless pit. And so this is that eternal place of, of forever punishment for these demons. So the request was intense, the request was fearful. The request shows that they needed his permission in order to enter these swine. Just as the wind and the waves obey him, angels, good angels and demonic angels, evil angels, have to have his permission. He's in control of all things. The reason for the request isn't clear. They may have thought that he was casting them out of the man and into the abyss, as we, we talked about, that eternal place of punishment. They may have hoped to turn others against Christ by destroying this herd of pigs. There seems to be a tendency and a desire of demons to inhabit living creatures. We don't know exactly why the request. But let's look at the result. Verse 13. And forthwith, Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked or drowned in the sea. Demonstrated the vast numbers of these demons who possessed the man, as they, he saw. He, can you imagine him standing there and seeing that they're out of him now, they're into the swine, and all of them go rushing to the sea. He says, those were in me. Their demons are real. It shows that this, this is not just an act that this man was putting on so he could get some attention. The reaction of the animals proves the, the reality of these demons and the strength, the power of Satan. It also illustrates the destructive nature of demonic possession. It's always Satan's desire to destroy anything that God has established. God is a God of order. Satan wants to create chaos. God brings peace. Satan brings confusion. God wants our homes to be strengthened. Satan wants to destroy families. The demon-possessed son that's mentioned in Matthew chapter 17 was throwing himself, that these demons were influencing him to throw himself into bodies of water to be drowned or into fire to end his life. That's the way Satan works. He wants to ruin you. He met the only one who could change him. 
And his life was dramatically changed. We see that in verses 14 to the end, uh, to verse 20. Notice others noticed that change. Verse 14, and they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that was done. That is, as the people heard it, they also went out. And they came to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion. Would you notice the past tense verbs there? He that was possessed and had the legion. There's been a change. That was before. This is after Christ's power. What is he doing now? He's sitting and clothed and in his right mind. What an interesting thing. And they were afraid. (laughs) Weren't they afraid of this demonic before? And yet now they see a greater power than they've ever experienced. And there's fear. In verse 16, and they saw it, they that saw it, told him how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. So in a positive sense, it's attracting people's attention. They're drawn to this transformation that's taken place in this life. The dramatic change was obvious. He's sitting before he was wandering. He's running among the tombs. There was unrest. Now there's peace. What a description of a saved uh, of, of a saved person. He was clothed before he was immodest. Now he's clothed. When God transforms the inside, it will affect the outside. He was in his right mind, no longer wildly cutting himself and yelling, crying out. He's been changed. That's the positive sense that they saw. But then here's this unbelievable reaction. They wanted Jesus to leave. They were afraid. At the end of verse 15, when they saw the changed man, they were afraid. You know, sometimes people look at you, if you've come to Christ and you've been saved, and, and they, they don't want anything to do with it. How did that, I, that's, that makes them uncomfortable? It's because of God's great power. And if God has great power over his creation and over the demonic world, should not have he power over our lives as well? And they don't want to submit to him. They didn't want to lose money. They were more concerned with the business than God's work. Like Demetrius in Ephesus, when Paul persuaded the people that there wasn't such a thing as a God made with hands. And Demetrius got the other silversmiths together and they, they saw they're going to lose money because they're making these shrines, they're selling them. They're making, it said it brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, Acts 19.24. And 19.27 it says their craft was in danger of being set at naught. We can't have that. Salvation will always affect businesses, especially the evil businesses of our world. Billy Sunday the baseball player who, whom God called into evangelism came to Detroit in 1916. 25,000 people were saved. And what happened in Detroit was what happened in Chicago and many other major cities when revival broke out. The saloons went bankrupt. The brothels were empty. People weren't spending their money there anymore. When God saves people, they'll stop wasting their money and then they'll start investing in eternal things. So they wanted Jesus to leave. But the man himself, let's consider things from his perspective. Things have changed. 
verse 18, And when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. He wanted to be with Jesus. He knew the power of God that had rescued him from this terrible life. When people get saved, they'll want to spend time with Jesus. They want to read his word. They want to pray. They want to go to church. There are three requests made in this passage, and this one is denied. The demons asked Jesus to send them into the swine, and he did. The people asked Jesus to depart out of their coasts, and he did. He got back in the boat. But the rescued man said, let me stay with you, and Jesus said no. Why would he say no on this request? Because he said, I have something that I want you to do. I have a mission for you. He had a new calling in life, verse 19. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not. But saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. So what was his commission? Luke 8, 39, he said, Return to thine house, thine own house. What did he do? In verse 20, it says he obeyed. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. First of all, he went to his own city to tell others. Luke 8 tells us that. Return to thine own house. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done for, unto him. And here in Mark... He told the entire surrounding area. Decapolis was uh, uh, included, Decapolis, the word means ten cities. There were ten Greek cities, all but one, which was east of the Jordan River. Um, and, and so he, he just didn't stop at his own home. He went to all the surrounding area, telling them, telling them what God had done for him. Has there been a radical transformation in your life? Have things changed? You look at your life before Christ, and you say, I'm so glad that Jesus has come into my heart, into my life. So much is different. He did it. It was his power that saved me. Maybe you're here today, and you have not ever put your trust in Christ for salvation. He died for you. He wants to rescue you. Will you come to him? And as a believer, are you telling others what his grace can do for them? Are you like this man going back to his home, telling family members, going back to his, his school where he used to, went to, to, to go, telling people that you were classmates with? You go back to those reunions. Do you say anything on Facebook? Are you letting people know what great things Jesus has done for you? It's one of, the, one of the marks of every believer. You'll want to tell others. I trust that our desire to witness will have been affected by the radical transformation that took place in the maniac of Gadara's life. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the power of God. We know that there's no other way that a person can be changed for eternity, that a person can be saved apart from the work of Christ. 
I pray that if there's one here today who's never trusted you as Savior, that today will be the day of salvation. And I pray that you'll burden each of us to see those around us who are bound in sin and fetters won't help. They need Christ. And help us to be faithful in our witness to others. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.